So I was uh, barely alive, but I'm going to recount some history to you. I was about two and a half years old. That's a long time ago. <laughs> It was about two and a half years. I was about two and a half years old, and Neil Armstrong became the first person to land on the moon, 1969 in July. And it was commented at that time that it was the first time in human history that not only had a human landed on a foreign body outside of the Earth, but it was the first time. That people experience something that they could not do in person, that it would be impossible for them. And how did people experience the lunar landing by Neil Armstrong on Apollo 11? How did they experience that? They experienced it through the ability of TV. That's how people felt connected to the moment. It was the first time they said that the entire world experienced something. With no possibility that they could have ever been there, it's not like a sporting event. If you get a ticket, you show up. Now it might be expensive, and it might be far away from you, but if you persevere, you could get there. There is no amount of money or perseverance that can get you to the moon, but people felt a part of the moment because of what they saw, which actually was、um, the fulfillment, I would say. Of one of perhaps one of the most important Canadian thinkers, Marshall McLuhan, who said that the medium is the message, and how right he was, of course, that in time we would come to understand the effect that TV would have on people, that the presence of the screen and the image would be something that would dramatically and remarkably change our lives. So much so, for all of you who are watching here, you're looking over on YouTube Live throughout the weeks. How many people have meetings on Zoom? How often do you connect with your friends or family over FaceTime? And do any of us ever question for a moment that we're having a legitimate experience with another person because of the medium? The medium is the message that you can carry a device that can connect you to somebody, even if they're not there. Okay. So I want to tell you another idea. An idea that perhaps is a little closer to our heart, that is very much found in this remarkable book. It's a little bit behind the bima, called the Torah, and inside here, the great German-born but American sociologist, social scientist Leo Strauss, once famously said that it is not so much what we read in the book. Than what the book does to us. That's the question that we should ask ourselves, not just what we're reading, but what the book does to us. Now, I'll say to you that the Torah, the five books of Moses, all of the Hebrew Bible, is a book, is a are a series of books that has no particular argument that it's making. When you look at the Torah, it's not like if you've had a chance to read Greek philosophy or or medieval philosophy, where they sit down. Socrates, Aristotle, Spinoza, they sit down in their book and they write out a list of all the arguments that they're making to you. And then, as they make the arguments, what do they do? They start bringing in all the supporting ideas as to why this argument is right. I say I believe this because of this idea and this idea and this idea. And it's like, and they actually number everything. Nietzsche does it too. 
Item idea one, two, three, four, five. They go through an entire menu of ideas, pointing out everything that they are arguing that you should believe. The Torah doesn't do that. The Torah is a book of ideas, but nowhere does it explicitly tell you what the idea is. The ideas are hidden behind the words. It's not in front. For example, when the Torah tells us about the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, it is telling us a story of the Jews leaving Egypt. Does it tell us what the great idea behind that is? Now, we extrapolate all kinds of great ideas from it. We extrapolate ideas about uni universal suffrage, about human freedom, about the renunciation of tyranny, about the wrongness of slavery. But nowhere does it say any of that, by the way. What does it simply say? It tells us the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. Another example. In the Torah, when it says that you shouldn't kill another human being, does it tell us any reason as to why that's such an important idea? Does it say anywhere about the importance of human life? Does it say anywhere that you don't have the right to take another person's life? When the Torah says that you should honor your mother and father, when I was a little kid, I hated when rabbis spoke about honoring your parents because I always felt guilty. <laughs> when it talks about honoring your mother and father and your parents, does the Torah say anywhere about the great ideas about respecting those things that came before you, about providing care and respect for the people who cared and respect for you? It doesn't say any of those things. But we know those ideas. And how do we know those ideas? Because we tease them out from behind the words. In other words, the arguments and the ideas that the Torah makes isn't on the surface. It's beneath the surface. So how does the Torah tell us these things? I'm going to tell you. The Torah tells us these things because it recognizes the one great key as to how to convince human beings to change. Now, most of us think, I include myself, and I always develop this habit when I talk to my kids, despite the fact that I know better. If you want to, here's the secret, you ready? <laughs> and it's free. Here's the great secret. If you want to change someone's opinion, what's the best way to do it? So I'm going to give you two options. One option is you can argue with them. You can go into the meeting or the appointment or the sit down with a family member or friend and you can, in your mind, go through this logical inventory of all the arguments that you have, why you're right and why they are wrong. And you can sit there and make all of these arguments. And at the end, you may create some peace between yourself and the other person, but are you gonna convince them to change? I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, I would say to you that when you study and look at the bulk of human history, good arguments seldom make any changes. What did Sam Harris once famously said? Bad ideas are worse than bad people because bad ideas make good people into bad people. So I'm not so sure that good ideas, that good arguments, convince people to change.
In fact, I would say to you, not only do I not believe that, I am sure of it, that good ideas do not make people change. So that if arguments and good ideas don't make people change, then how do you make people change? Admittedly, a cynic might say that humans don't change. But that's not true either. Because you're not the same person you were 30 years ago. And you're not. And Noah, five years from now, you will be a different person than you are now. Humans do change. Deeply. And that's why I tell people every once in a while when someone mentions to me, usually people in my family, and I'm looking at you, why is it that at Passover we sit down and we read the same story? Why is it you come to Shul and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? It's the same Sidur, the Machsor, the same words year after year. And I tell people, if you're the same person year after year when you read those words, then something is wrong with you. We're not the same people year after year. We change. So how do we convince people to change though? How do we make arguments for them to be something else? Something better? The Torah has the answer to that. The Torah says that the way that you make people change is not by making arguments with them. It's by telling them stories. Stories move us. Not only stories, but stories about people. These stories about people, inspiring people, strong people, courageous people, brave people, they well within us a desire to be like those people. We want to imitate them. We want to be like them. And they inspire us to be changing about ourselves, about developing something inside of ourselves. And how do I know that's true? Well, I, like you, have been stuck in my home for weeks now. Now, I have uh, tried to balance my schedule, but I've been sucked into at least two Netflix series, one of which I'm going to talk about now. It's called The Last Dance. You watched it? Really? Okay. Have you seen it? Okay. The Last Dance is about the final season that Michael Jordan had with the Chicago Bulls. And it is a remarkable documentary by ESPN. You should definitely watch it. Not on Shabbat, but you should definitely watch it. And more than just the story of the sports team going through a very, very traumatic season as they pursue their sixth championship with unarguably the greatest basketball player who ever lived. But the other thing that was remarkable is on a deeper level, it's a story about Michael Jordan. And as opposed to the Michael Jordan who was the person that I thought I knew when I was a kid growing up, He's a very complex and perhaps arguably a very troubled person. But when I was a kid growing up, I remember two things about Michael Jordan, not just him being a great basketball player, but there was a whole marketing campaign around him. They had shoes, Air Jordans, on the Wheaties box, they had Michael Jordan, and they had a great marketing saying about Michael Jordan. They said, be like Mike. You're wording the words with me. Be like Mike. The idea being that when you see Michael Jordan doing all those things, 
seemingly not only soaring through the air with very little effort, but also kind of gliding through life. This Teflon personality of wealth and success and looks, everything seemed to be the world for him. That you could be like him if you wore his shoes and you ate his cereal and so forth and so on. Which is just a very crude way of saying that the people who managed the Michael Jordan understood the message of the Torah. That if you give a great story about an inspiring person, you'll change. You'll want to change at least. You'll want to mimic them. So what's the story from this morning's Torah portion? This morning, this morning in the Torah portion we read of the Israelites who are being told what to do when they enter into the land of Israel. Now they haven't entered yet into the land. And in fact, they will not enter the land during the five books of the Torah. Only when Joshua comes will they enter into the land. Nonetheless, we are told of the ceremony that will occur when they enter into the land. And during this time, we are told that there are a series of blessings and curses that are being told to them. That if they enter into the land and are goodly and honest and just, and if they are believing that the blessings will come their way, and if they are not, if they are the opposite of those things, then there will be curses that come their way. So how do we understand this? First of all, it's interesting to note that in the entire Torah, and there are lots of holidays that are mentioned, there is no holiday of the people going into the land. There is no Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, on a biblical level, when the, when the people go into the land. We have a holiday when the Jews leave Egypt, but there is no holiday of the Jews going into the land of Israel. And I think the answer is something that we can feel close to ourselves now, in the moment in time that we're in. I said to you earlier that I've been trying to balance my schedule, not just immersing myself in Netflix. So I have a pandemic reading list. If you're curious, email me after Shabbat. I'll share my pandemic reading list. One of them was a fascinating book, fiction. I usually don't read fiction, but I did this time, called Station Eleven. It's about a plague, a respiratory plague that breaks out starting in Toronto. It was written five years ago. And it goes to horribly wipe out most of humanity. And the survivors, some of them form a band of these itinerant actors and performers. And on the sign of one of the trucks that they're driving, they don't have gasoline anymore. It's pulled by horses. On the side of one of the trucks is a quote that says, survival alone isn't sufficient. It's not enough just to survive in life. It's not enough just to live somewhere. It's not, a lo- not enough just to arrive and enter someplace. The Torah this morning is telling us in the story that in order to truly arrive somewhere, you have to become something. We will get through this moment. There's no question, of course. But the only question that remains is what we, we, what we will become on the other side of this. When we arrive to the end, what will we be?
I am of course reminded of the beautiful words of Anne Frank. Anne Frank was, as you know, she was secluded and stored away in an attic of a friend's home. And when she saw her friends through a small window in the attic being taken away by the Nazis, Anne Frank wrote in her notebook, in her diary, she said, I will not think of the horror, but only of the beauty that remains. And that is certainly what awaits for us on the other side. Shabbat Shalom and a Mazel Tov to you all.